This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, a podcast where we take a look at the interconnectedness of our medieval past, the stories it holds, and how these stories directly shape the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jonathan. I want to thank everybody who is subscribing, downloading, and listening to the show, but a special thanks to those who are sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're still seeing great growth, and so much of that is owed to you. Thank you. So we've got a big announcement before we get started today. Fortune's Wheel now has a new home on the web. That's right, I've just published a new website for the podcast, and I hope you all will head over there and bookmark it, as it will, in addition to our social media, be the source for all things Fortune's Wheel. There's also a blog that I hope to get to at least once a week about generally medieval-related topics, or just my rambling about medieval-related topics. I don't know what it's going to turn into, but it's going to be fun, and I hope you're going to enjoy it, and I hope you check it out. The site is linked on Facebook, Twitter, and now on each episode's show notes. But if you happen to have a pen handy, because, well, like a good Boy Scout, you're always prepared, here is the website address, fortuneswheelpodcast.wixsite.com forward slash fwpod. Again, that's fortuneswheelpodcast.wixsite.com forward slash fwpod. Okay, let's get on with the show here. This is our eighth episode of our third season of the podcast, a season focusing predominantly on the chaos that erupted following the death of Canute the Great. Today's episode, episode 42, is entitled An Unstoppable Force. I hope you enjoy the show. It had to be one of the tensest times in England in a really long time, since at least Edward Ironsides refused to bend the knee to Canute some 35 years before. And there were definitely men on that field who were old enough to remember it, too. Heck, there were probably men who took up arms in the battles between Edward and Canute. To take up arms in defense of your kingdom against a foreign usurper is one thing, though. To take up arms against another earl, let alone the other Englishman, well, that was something else entirely. I would imagine the conversations around the campfires, whether in the Godwin camps or the Leofrich, Seward, Ralph camps, were likely pretty similar. How on earth could this come to be? How is it that we finally get a Saxon king back on the throne, married to a woman of Saxon blood, and we're staring across a battlefield ready to fight, maim, and murder other Englishmen? Is this really Earl Godwin's doing? Or was it our Saxon king's doing? I mean, how English is this guy anyway? Well, he may have been born to the line of Alfred, but he was half Norman and he was raised for decades in Normandy itself. Also, his entire household was filled with Norman counselors and laborers. His own wife, our Saxon queen, even hired a Norman chambermaid to help her assimilate into her husband's Norman ways. And this guy even got his Norman bishop into London. And now Canterbury. And wait, come to think of it, Queen Edith is herself. Isn't she half Danish? I mean, what in the fresh hell is going on here? But this really all boils down to our Saxon king being Norman and ordering our Saxon earl to murder his own people in retaliation for what seems like an attack instigated by our Norman king's foreign friends. And if the king can force this upon the powerful earl of Wessex, then what might he force our own earls to do to us? 
there was a lot riding on this moment, and everyone assembled was pretty well aware of any and all impending outcomes. It had been simmering for a handful of years already, but in 1051, man, this year had turned into a crap stew of epic proportions. I mean, at this point, with all of the men loyal to Godwin camped on one side of Gloucester, and all the men loyal to Edward, Leofrich, Seward, and Ralph on the other. And as they continued to have the island's most epic staring contest, the island itself just waited and waited. Godwin refused to blink until he was granted safe passage, and Edward wasn't about to blink until he had his earl on a knee. With Edward's man, the Norman clergyman Robert of Jumiege, now Archbishop Robert of Canterbury, that left Godwin's man, Bishop Stigand, who was up for the job before uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. He was left to courier messages from Earl Godwin to King Edward for what seemed like an eternity. On one exchange, Godwin begged the king's mercy and to grant him safe passage with which to appear before Edward and plead his case, plead his innocence, as well as the innocence of the people of Dover. Edward responded by sending Count Eustace. Yeah, <laughs> he's, still, he's still around. He stuck around after running back to Edward after the events in Dover. So yeah, Edward sent Eustace and his soldiers, and that wonderful mustache, into Earl Swain's Herefordshire, and just to run rampant taking what they wanted and doing what they wanted with its people. And well, reading between the lines of the records, we can pretty much assume that for Eustace's men, it was open season in Herefordshire. So not only is Edward being an absolute jerk, he is clearly showing his affinity toward those not English folks. Remember, Eustace and his men were French. That's right. The king, after allowing Eustace's men to get off scot-free after the events of Dover, he not only harbored them, but the king also allowed them to take up arms against his own subjects in Herefordshire. For Edward, this looked pretty bad. So, Godwin tried again. Godwin sent another envoy led by Bishop Stigand, simply asking the king to see reason and to allow him to plead his case in front of his king, in front of the English people, and in front of God himself. Edward responded by explicitly granting him safe passage, but he did offer that Godwin could bring no more than 12 men with them. I'm not exactly sure if it was intended, but a little hidden mockery jumps out at me personally. See, Godwin is pleading his innocence, and Edward allows him 12 followers to willingly walk into a hornet's nest they were sure not to survive. It seems like a poetic parallel to the story of Christ, if you ask me. And though martyrdom was a powerful thing, uh, a powerful lasting role, really, to play in the grand scheme of things, Godwin was far more secular to think of such things. Godwin was a player in the game, not some martyr to be thrown away after the hullabaloo died down. Sorry, not happening. So Godwin is said to have tried again, this time offering an exchange of hostages as a sign of goodwill toward the other, allowing him to enter Gloucester under the king's protection. Don't forget what happened the last time, you know, safe passage was, was offered by a king. And Godwin, of course, is well aware of it. The exchange of hostages, though, is a deeply ancient tradition that we're 
well, we're sure to see more of beyond this century of our story. Exchanging hostages allows for leverage over another. However, if both parties exchange hostages, which is by far the most popular agreement and which one that is offered here by Godwin, then neither party really has more leverage over the other. But, see, this is where the staring contest gets really interesting. (laughs) King Edward agrees. Godwin, probably relieved at the goodwill, Well, Godwin sends his own son, Wolfnoth, as well as his own grandson. And not just any grandson either. Godwin sends Hakon, son of Swain Godwinson. Swain's chickens are finally coming home to roost, it seems. Which begs the question we will wrestle with to a certain degree today. Should a son suffer because of the sins of the father? In 11th century England, the answer was crystal clear, though. Absolutely. I mean, just look at how many sons had to mop up or, or mess up their father's legacies so far in our story. Canute saw to the conquest his father Swain Forkbeard failed to accomplish. Harold Harefoot seemed to extend his father Canute's successes on the island, only to, only to have his corpse dug up and his kingdom violated by Canute's other son, Hartha Canute. After Edmund Ironsides rebelled against his father, King Ethelred, Many decades later, Edward also sought to clean up the mess begun during his father's reign. It's not just in England, of course. Magnus the Good sought to reclaim what his father, King St. Olaf I, couldn't in Norway. Vladimir the Great, or excuse me, Yaroslav the Wise, and his father, Vladimir the Great, well, Yaroslav was forced to defeat his own brother to see that Rus' territory wasn't terrorized by his father's failed son. In Normandy... The Hauteville sons were forced to seek their fortunes and families elsewhere as Papa Tancred couldn't afford his boys anything due to the lack of space and influence. While William, good grief, talk about a son being left without much of a home when his father decided to run off to Jerusalem and get himself dead. This motif of sons fixing the sins of the father is well known for a reason, and it is far, far more ancient than the 11th century, make no mistake about that. Now, not only was Wolfnoth being handed over by his father Godwin, but Hakon was also handed over as a major move toward reconciliation, seems how his father, that is Swain, was a repeat offender throughout the kingdom. And so, off went Wolfnoth and his nephew Hakon to Edward's custody. And um, no one came back, as far as the record tells us. Edward never, apparently, actually agreed to the exchange part of the agreement. He agreed to accept, though, not exchange. Taking the proverbial slap in the face, the bruise to his honor, Godwin pushed forward, the bigger picture looming large in his mind. Godwin had a manor close by, maybe 10 miles or so south of Gloucester, because we can't forget that Gloucester was part of Wessex. Godwin, his sons, his wife, they were all in attendance at that manor, when one evening Stigand returned from another visit to the royal court. And he returned with the king's reply. Stigand walked in. Candles flickered when he opened the door. Godwin glanced to see who it was. Godwin's face lost all its color when he saw both dried and wet tear streaks down the bishop's cheeks, his eyes red and puffy, not willing to meet his lord's stare. The earl's eyes dropped to the table he'd been standing at, his sons and trusted things around him. Well... 
Godwin probably said, having an idea of the answer already. I mean, it's not as if the nature of the answers changed much, like for days, even weeks at this point. Uncharacteristically, Edward had not blinked once during this impasse. The bishop answered something to the effect of, King Edward is willing to grant your request on one condition. Godwin and his men hung on those very words for an incredibly tense moment, a moment stretching through the night as everyone held their breaths. Then Stiggins said, through fresh tears and a quivering voice, The king is willing to grant your innocence, without further questioning, my lord, on the condition that you present to him his brother, Alfred. And it was in that moment that Godwin knew he was finished. There was no coming back from that. To produce the king's little brother, a young man who was Edward's only real companion during his his exile in Normandy, while Godwin ran free, serving as his father's and older brother's usurper, and then was the chief player in the events that killed young Alfred, Godwin knew Edward had played the ultimate hand. Alfred's death, all of these years, had been Edward's ace up his sleeve. The story goes that Godwin pushed anything and anyone out of his way as he ran from the room screaming to his family and closest advisors to mount their horses. It was time to bounce, grabbing everything they possibly could, specifically anything of value, gold and silver, gems, jewelry, etc., shoving it all in sacks and bags, pockets and boots. They jumped upon their horses within minutes of the news, the entire Godwin family, including Godwin's wife, Githa, and they rode away, abandoning their post and their men standing ready for war. And they rode hard, as hard as anyone had ever ridden to escape certain death. In the flurry, they made out of notice Archbishop Robert of Canterbury, tailing them closely. He knew the response the wise old earl would have upon hearing Edward's words, as he, well, let's face it, they were Probably the archbishop's words whispered into Edward's ears all these years. Godwin killed your little brother, Alfred. Never forget what Godwin did to Alfred. Godwin will certainly have his punishment upon death, but that shouldn't mean he gets a pass in life, does it? Godwin gouged Alfred's eyes out. Godwin beat Alfred's limp body. Godwin left Alfred for dead on a beach somewhere. Archbishop Robert was no doubt behind a lot of Edward's resentment toward the powerful Earl, but we can't make the mistake in thinking Edward was entirely a puppet. By all accounts, Edward was becoming his own man, his own king, in many rights, despite the influence he may have been receiving. Edward lost his brother, and Godwin killed him. Period. If Godwin was allowed to escape, then a man like him was sure to make a return at some point. He was too powerful, knew too many people across the channel. But who to follow? See, while Godwin, Githa, and their sons Tostigan Girth and daughter Gunhild rode south, the other two sons in attendance, Harold and his little brother Leofwina, both rode west to the port town of Bristol. Harold and Leofwina, they'd heard from Swain Godwinson that he had ships with men at the ready. Coincidence? (laughs) Not with Swain Godwinson, it wasn't. And just when you thought this guy couldn't get any dumber, he totally redeems himself. So Harold and Leofwina rode west and quickly hopped aboard Swain's ships and set sail for Dublin. And the pursuers, 
quickly weighing their options, made the easy choice to let Harold and Leofwina go. Godwin was the mark here. Godwin was the linchpin that held the entire family power structure together. Godwin could not be allowed to leave the island. And as Archbishop Robert and his contingent of warriors tried desperately to track them and catch up, the Godwins, in fact, made it to the port city of Bossom along the southern coast of England. Bossom was certainly loyal to the longtime Earl, especially after the news of the Earl's refusal to murder the people of Dover for the supposed crime of self-defense. Arriving in Bossom must have been a little bittersweet, though, as it was not only the place in which the mighty Godwin family would escape England by the skins of their teeth, but it was also the birthplace of Godwin's second son, Harold. Upon their arrival, they quickly set about procuring a ship and setting sail. Now, I highly doubt it ended with that stereotypical movie moment that has Godwin, you know, wrapping one arm around Githa's shoulders as he stands, smiling and waving triumphantly and smugly at Archbishop Robert, who's ridden his horse all the way out onto the beach, the waves splashing as high as the horse's upper legs. No, I doubt it was quite like that. But somewhere in there, there's a nugget of truth. I mean, Godwin did barely escape with his head and the heads of his wife and children, too. And they fortunately did what any rich person does when the government's coming to steal your stuff. You stuff it and run. That's what you do. And the Godwins happened to stuff quite a bit of jewels, money, gold, silver, and anything else valuable, as I said, that could possibly pay for any future expenses. I mean, they were going into exile, and exile is expensive, just ask King Edward. In fact, Godwin's holy man in London, Spearhavoc. Hey, the Vikings can't have all the awesome names, can they? See, Spear Havoc lifted all the wealth he could upon hearing of Godwin's impromptu trip abroad, and part of the goodies he lifted were some of the king's own jewels. And this guy, Spear Havoc, he was already headed down the Thames and out to sea by the time anyone was aware of what he'd done. Now, this little heist was no small matter. Living, as I said, living in exile wasn't cheap, and neither was returning from it. And as Harold and Leofwina were sailing across the Irish Sea, Godwin was taking the rest of the crew to safety across the Channel, a bit into the North Sea, to his good old buddy, Count Baldwin V in Flanders. It must have been a long ride back to London for Archbishop Robert, though. Holy man or not, the spiritual needs of the kingdom dipped into the secular realm unusually often, and it was Archbishop Robert who had to tell his king that he let the rene renegade earl get away. So while King Edward no doubt threw a fit for the ages, his other earls breathed a giant sigh of relief. No one wanted a civil war. They knew what the outcome would be, despite which side of the conflict, Godwin or Edward, actually won. What you had was essentially the entire English nobility gathered on one battlefield, ready to fight one another and kill one another. There would be massive casualties, and noble families would no doubt be completely wiped out in many cases. And in the 11th century, the days of the honorable and brave Elderman Britnoth of Malden fame were not some distant legend. That honor code of leading men into, you know, onto the field of battle was still practiced and still respected. Earls Leofrich and Seward and Ralph they knew full well that they and their family's sources of prestige and power and influence could collapse as soon as their lifeless bodies did. England was on the precipice of utter ruin. 
And here's an interesting fact to throw into the mix. Though there were just the Earls Godwin, Leofrich, Seward, Ralph of Mantas, Swain Godwinson, and Harold Godwinson, below them in the English social and political hierarchy were roughly 5,000 thanes scattered amongst them. Beyond that, the Firds were full of these thanes, as well as thousands upon thousands of other Englishmen comprising the able-bodied peasantry. Do you remember that bit about the responsibilities earls and thanes have toward their peasantry and vice versa? Well, the quick refresher is this. Earls protect the lands and properties in honor of thanes below them, while the thanes in turn are ready at a moment's notice to jump when their earls say jump. See, this happens all the way down the hierarchy, at least as far as the slaves are. Slaves were seen as property, and as such they were actually fairly protected, and normally not used in such an expendable way like forcing them on the front lines. Morally reprehensible practice or not, it seems like a waste of money. We're talking thousands and thousands of nobility and peasantry on this battlefield, and these thousands of noblemen, at whatever level, weren't just from pockets around the kingdom either. We're looking at a potential slaughter of the entire noble class in England. With such a social and political calamity, how might England ever recover? After such an engagement, England would (laughs) have no nobility to speak of and would be unable to defend itself because you know full well that other kingdoms and duchies and counties and marches and all the rest, they were all watching, licking their chops at the leftovers. England had been coveted for a long time. It had been one of the wealthiest and most prosperous economies in Europe at the time, and it had proven pretty resilient over the previous decades, too. Yeah, everyone wanted a piece of England if they could get their hands on it. And if the lemming was willing to throw itself off a cliff in spite of itself, well, who could blame the others for watching intently, ready to pounce? But here's another interesting thing to think about as well. And this was not lost among the men involved here. England was representing itself, and it was vulnerable at this moment. With the whole northern Europe, European world watching and waiting, it seems like Godwin, with all of his pleas for peace and a fair shake and his claims for innocence, it kind of looks like King Edward was the one who put all this together. Okay, so, which is really strange, because, I mean, what king wouldn't think this out beforehand? And if not beforehand, what king wouldn't look out of his window in Gloucester, see what's happening just outside, and notice that his entire nobility stands on the edge of collapse? I mean, it's pretty obvious what might happen, right? Right? So my question is this, and I'm throwing it out there knowing full well that it should stand the test of critical questioning by others. My question is this, what if King Edward's plan was something like this all along? Or, what if Edward saw recent events and devised an alternative plan for the rest of his reign, and he orchestrated this? On the one hand, it's a long shot. Edward wasn't very popular, especially compared to Earl Godwin, and he was the son of King Ethelred II, who, (laughs) remember, would be soon dubbed in the 12th century uh, the Unready, (laughs) And he, he was also the product of Emma, a woman who quite literally gave her firstborn the middle finger at every turn. But, and humor me here, on the other hand, he was also Edward, 
son of Emma of Normandy, a woman who had masterfully finagled her way through five decades of top-shelf power and intrigue. He was Edward, the king who was raised in exile in Normandy and therefore had drummed up a pretty hefty debt to his Norman benefactors. And see, here's the thing about medieval benefactors. You may be staying at a particular person's home, and you may owe that family something in return as, as soon as you're able, but you also owe someone else something in return. You weren't just sleeping on someone's couch when you were in exile. You were sleeping in someone's realm. And in Edward's case, he was in the Duchy of Normandy, and there was a certain duke who around the year 1050 was quickly solidifying and, and standing on his own feet. And of course, his name was William, and William was not one to pass up a single opportunity. In addition to that, Edward was also doing something curious from the moment his father and brother died back in England in the mid-1010s. Edward was publicly declaring himself king. If he had Twitter, he'd be contesting the election results every morning at 3 a.m., all the way from France, proclaiming himself the winner. And on top of all that, Edward was writing letters and, and holding meetings and signing official documents as Edward, King of England. He was, at least in his own mind and those of his Norman benefactors, the rightful King of England for all of that time. And his working behind the scenes of Canute's reign was evidenced by Duke William's father's failed raid on England back in 1030, as we've mentioned before in the podcast, that had the express purpose of installing Edward onto the throne of England. All that is true. Edward claiming to be king in exile, the failed attempt to put him on the throne in 1030. All that's true up until his brother Alfred's death in 1037. Though he held onto the title of king since 1030, Edward's ambitions and resolve were waning as it you know just didn't seem to be but after alfred as you know he pretty much gave it all up until 1040 in hartha canute's letter that is but all of those years maintaining the title of king well that tends to rack up quite the debt of promises like i said i'm just floating the question in reality we'll never truly know what was going on in edward's head as he pushed the kingdom towards civil war but we do have little clues here and there with which to let the imagination run a little freer than most of history allows it to, so have fun, I guess. But most importantly to folks like Leofrich and Seward, two long-time and powerful earls, it hadn't escaped them that, again, if King Edward could relieve and then expel or even drive out the most powerful, powerful of them, then that means he could do that to anyone throughout the entire kingdom. This was no joke, this this English civil war that never was. England hung on a precipice, and soon folks started wondering who was to blame for this whole debacle. Again, was it Godwin for not complying with the king's orders? Was it that foreigner, Count Eustace II of Boulogne, with his magnificent mustache blowing in the breeze? Was it him to blame for picking a fight where there wasn't one? But why would he do that? Why would Count Eustace pick a fight with the people of Dover? Why not just keep his ships moored near London, and then sail back to Boulogne after his visit with King Edward? Why did he send the ships to Dover to wait, and then choose to travel overland to Dover? What would spur such a decision? I mean, when you look at it from that angle, it's almost as if, no, 
Was Eustace? No. Was Eustace put up to it by King Edward? Well, it sure seems like it if you ask me. So we have no clear proof either way, but we know these facts. Count Eustace visits Edward in London. He sends his ships to Dover to wait. After his visit, of which nothing of substance is documented, he rides to Dover, picks a fight with the locals, kills several of them in the melee that followed, runs back to King Edward in London, an odd decision if you ask me, and he and his men, well, minus the 19 of his that were killed in Dover, that is, hid behind the king and waited for the fallout. Edward orders Godwin to slaughter the people of Dover as retaliation. Godwin refuses, but asks for an audience to plead his innocence. Edward sends Count Eustace and his French soldiers to raid Earl Swain's Herefordshire as a response to it. Godwin refuses again and repeats his appeal for an audience. Edward relents on the condition that Godwin produces Alfred. This is all after Godwin gives two uh, very important hostages to over to Edward. Godwin bolts. William arrives with a contingent of men. Wait, William? What's he? Huh? Yeah, William arrived just after all this went down. Dover, the standoff, England on the brink of civil war, Godwin fleeing. Why? Why, though? It... Well, the records say William was there to visit his great aunt, Emma, who was at this point old and sick. Yes, the incomparable, 60 years old now, Emma of Normandy had been at the height of English power since 1002. That's like 50 years almost. And she had been brought low by her own scorned son, King Edward, and she was to die within weeks of these cataclysmic events. Events that would see her longtime ally, Earl Godwin, and his family exiled by the son she cast aside all those years before. But the records also state that William <laughs> William brought soldiers with them. Quite a few, actually. And soldiers don't go anywhere without their gear. So, what's going on here? Seriously, Edward, what, what's going on here? Was William in cahoots with Edward? Was William expecting to reap the rewards of an island kingdom devoid of their nobility due to a civil war? given to him by the king who had possibly owed the duke quite a few favors. Unfortunately, we will most likely never find out the whole story, but man, that's an enticing theory if you ask me. And this is how 1051 closes. Oh, oh, wait, 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 wait. There is one more thing. There's one more thing that Edward can do to Godwin to really push the dagger in further. And then twist. Edward. Having not produced an heir in over six years of marriage, something that Edward's chief advisor all these years, again, the Norman Robert of Jumiege, now the Archbishop of Canterbury, it's easy to lose track. So that's a reminder as much for me as for anyone else. That's why I repeat these things every, every so often. See, Robert of Jumiege is said to have been plotting an alternate, alternative plan to remedy this for some time. Check this. Edward booted Queen Edith from his bedchamber. Well, he booted her further than that, actually. Edward strips her of all of her personal wealth, lands, properties, and titles, and sends her to a nunnery indefinitely. And at this point, any chance of Godwin's endgame working out, that is, a Godwin child on the throne of England, is but a dream within a nightmare. Now, 
Edward, nearing 50 years old, could act quickly to find another way to produce an heir. And remember, Edward has shown very little true sentiment toward the English lines of power, despite showing so on the surface, which was really just him being played by Godwin for the duration of his reign so far. Edward was Norman, really, and so the fear spread like wildfire across the island's nobility that just as the kingdom had shaken off its Danish influence, for all intents and purposes, their new king, a king of Alfred the Great's blood no less, was going to sacrifice the kingdom once again to a foreign power. Only this time, it was Normandy, which was already a duchy within the kingdom of France. This, in 1051, with Godwin gone, was a national travesty. But there's something about this predicament that hasn't been answered to yet. You know what they say about immovable objects, right? Well, see, there's a paradox at play here, a little philosophical thought experiment, if you will. For every immovable object, there's also an unstoppable force. It's a natural balance. Godwin may have been driven out of England, but he was hardly alone in his fight with the king. And Edward, confident though he was, may have overplayed his hand. As soon as Godwin made it to Flanders with his wife and three kids, he immediately set to work on a plan to re-enter the kingdom. Edward missed this lesson in physics, the one that elaborated on actions having their own equal and opposite reactions. Edward was, in that one moment an immovable object. But regardless of one's resolve, there will always be a response. For Edward, he must have felt triumphant beyond belief when news came back of Godwin's shameful running away. Though disappointment that the Earl got away in the first place probably couldn't have been understated either. Godwin spent his handful of months in Flanders, writing letters to anyone who would hear his plea. Denmark, France, Normandy, Dublin. And he spent an equal amount of time at the court of his powerful host, Count Baldwin V. Godwin eventually strengthened his relationships on the mainland and then made the move to create a navy with which to ram it straight up Edward's Thames, if you know what I mean. Godwin was no one's chump. Godwin wrote to his two other sons, Harold and Leofwina, in Dublin to relay the plan. They were to enter the court of the Viking ruler of Dublin and procure their own fleet, all promised payment under the house of Godwin's coffers, of course. Lannisters always pay their debts, of course. Harold and Leofwina, we hear, had to do more than just merely promise the money to these raiders, though. They were said to have accompanied a small fleet to go a raiding along the Welsh border, which was probably all fine and well with Harold, as Wales wasn't exactly a stranger to him or a friend. But after that, he sent word to his father in Flanders that he was ready when needed. After months of walking the docks along the Flemish border, Godwin, well, he rallied his own fleet. Shocker. Now, to be clear, these were not Flemish soldiers and sailors, though. These were predominantly pirates, men who made their livings off of patrolling the very waters where Godwin and the rest of his English kingdom had become very wealthy and influential over the centuries. But Godwin was in no position to take some moral high ground here. Retribution's kind of a funny thing, isn't it? Morality. (laughs) Very often, morality is circumstantial. Godwin set sail to reclaim his heritage, his legacy, and his family's future. He'd worked far too long to just 
let some blowhard cancel it out. Meeting on the Isle of Wight, then a part of Wessex, he found a mostly empty island, the residents having heard that a fleet of pirates were on their way, so they fled. Harold, Leofwina, and their Dublin Vikings arrived shortly after, and to Edward's shock, instead of fighting or fleeing, those people on the Island of Wight, who were left, actually joined Godwin. Well, I mean, it's not like Godwin didn't unleash his pirates to pillage and plunder, but they knew the winning ticket when they saw it. And it's unmistakably reminiscent of Godwin's own father's actions a lifetime earlier. This had to have crossed the Earl's mind. But they didn't come to beach at the Isle of Wight. They came for Wessex, to take Wessex. Well, Wessex by way of London and and Edward. Along the southern coast, they took what they wanted, and the rebellion's numbers continued to swell in support of their exiled Earl. There's absolutely no way Edward wasn't scared at this point. He wrote letters to his Earls who had left Gloucester months ago, but they were unable to help much except for Earl Ralph, the king's nephew. Edward heard word that Godwin was rounding the southeastern corner of the island and nearing the massive mouth of the River Thames, which emptied out into the North Sea. From there, it was a matter of a couple days before Godwin reached Edward in London. Archbishop Robert of Canterbury, of course, rode to his king's side, whispering advice to to stay and refuse the Earl entry past the Bridge of London. Edward remained steely, putting Earl Ralph in charge of a blockade at the bridge in order to stop the Earl's band of pirates. Under no circumstances were they to be let through. Period. Godwin pushed forward, up the river. England itself had just narrowly avoided the English Civil War that never was. But both of these men... Godwin and Edward have everything riding on on these next few days, and one of them will budge, redirecting the course of the next decade or more. So back to our paradox. Which one would win, do you think? The immovable object or the unstoppable force? I hope you enjoyed today's episode detailing Edward's initial endgame against the formidable House of Godwin. Godwin's narrow escape, and the massive intrigue surrounding Godwin's motives behind the English Civil War that never was. Please continue to subscribe and share the podcast on your favorite podcasting service or app. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can contact the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com with questions, concerns, topic suggestions, and even corrections, as yes, I am humble enough to know that there will be unintentional errors along the way. Also, I encourage you to become a Patreon supporter for just a couple bucks per month. You will receive perks such as bonus episodes and shoutouts on the show to name a couple. My goal for this podcast is to be 100% ad-free and self-sustaining by the end of the year, and I appreciate everyone who is helping to make this possible. Thank you. And as a very quick reminder, I also want to remind everybody, head over to the podcast's new website. Yes, that's right, a new website at fortuneswheelpodcast.com w-i-x-s-i-t-e dot com forward slash f-w-pod that is fortuneswheelpodcast.wixsite.com forward slash f-w-pod thank you very much for your support on the next episode we will take a look at what happens when immovable objects refuse to budge remember 
To be immovable is a choice, and being King Edward most certainly had a choice. And speaking of choices, you can tell a lot about a person by looking at how they choose to spend their time, and I want to thank you for spending your time learning about our shared history here on Fortune's Wheel Podcast. Until next time. Thank you.